amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, what are the signs that a child could become a psychopath? I've actually been asked this question a number of times in a number of ways. Another version here is, what are the signs that a child has already become a psychopath? And instead of the word psychopath, I've also received this question with the term antisocial personality disorder. Now, I received this question almost a year ago now, so it's, it's been a while. And I had to do a bit of research on this, and also I wanted to talk to a number of clinicians before I attempted to answer this question. There's really a lot to this because you're dealing with a construct like psychopathy, which has a lot of serious consequences attached to it. And then, of course, referring this or relating this to children. And a lot of times in mental health, we don't like to label children as psychopathic. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. So first, let me explore the difference between psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, because that's an area of confusion. And that really does lend an important component here to this discussion, like understand that difference is important here. So psychopathy is a construct. It's not a mental disorder. And it has two factors to it. So really, there's two types of psychopathy, primary and secondary. Sometimes they're also called factor one and factor two. And sometimes, to make it even more confusing, psychopathy, factor one psychopathy, is referred to as just the word psychopathy. And factor two psychopathy is referred to as sociopathy. So we have a lot of terms to really talk about the same two types of psychopathy. Factor 1 psychopathy has traits like being callous, unemotional, manipulative, deceitful, and Factor 2 has characteristics that we more typically associate with antisocial behavior, like impulsivity, irresponsibility, and committing crimes. So Factor 2 psychopathy, secondary psychopathy, has a stronger association with the mental disorder, antisocial personality disorder. So. That is an actual mental disorder in the DSM, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, so somebody can be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And again, it aligns with factor two psychopathy, and it has some overlap with factor one psychopathy. So when you look at the research and you look at how children could have psychopathic tendencies, a lot of times they're talking about antisocial personality disorder and not psychopathy. So to make things even a bit more confusing, Antisocial personality disorder can't be diagnosed until age 18. So before 18, another disorder named conduct disorder is oftentimes used. So again, we have, when working with children and the construct of psychopathy, we have a lot of confusing elements here. And when you look at the research, it's not always clear 
to what they are referring. Psychopathy, factor one or factor two, antisocial personality disorder, or conduct disorder. So to answer this question about the signs that a child will become a psychopath, I titled this video 11 signs that a child is at risk for psychopathy, because that's what I'm really talking about here. Since we're not going to label children as psychopaths, we're really talking about the risk for future psychopathy. And psychopathy is an important topic. This is a topic that really deserves more attention. There aren't many psychopaths in the general population, depending on the research you look at, maybe 1%. But we know that psychopaths are responsible for a large percentage of violent crimes. And the exact percent really isn't known because, again, psychopathy is confused with antisocial personality disorder. So we just know it's a fairly large percent. Some estimates say as many as half of violent crimes can be connected to psychopathic traits. So I mentioned before that we don't label children as psychopaths and kind of talked about conduct disorder a little bit. It's important to understand here that in mental health, again, psychopathy has a stigma attached to it. So a lot of times you'll see this term callous unemotional traits. So you see a child who has low level of guilt, reduced empathy, callousness, and uncaring behavior. Sometimes this is referred to as pre-psychopathic, but I don't really like that term because, again, it kind of suggests that somebody is definitely going to be psychopathic or is likely going to be psychopathic. So instead of psychopathy, we use the disorder, conduct disorder, and specifically with the callous unemotional trait component, there's what's called a specifier attached to that disorder. So it's an element that explains more about the presentation of the disorder. And the specifier for callous unemotional traits is called limited prosocial emotions. So really when you see limited prosocial emotions, that's the same thing as callous unemotional traits. And we know that if somebody has limited prosocial emotions, they're at a greater risk to develop psychopathy. We also know that 80% of children that have this diagnosis will not develop into psychopaths. Of course, that means about 20% will. So that's why, again, we have to take this kind of seriously when we see conduct disorder with limited prosocial emotions. So with all this in mind, when I talk about a sign that somebody could develop psychopathy, that a child could develop psychopathy, it's important to remember that a sign is really, in essence, a risk factor. So we see multiple risk factors in one child, and we get worried that they may develop psychopathy someday. But somebody can have a lot of risk factors and never develop psychopathy. So the signs don't necessarily mean somebody definitely will develop psychopathy. They're just things that we see in the literature and different elements I've seen in clinical experience and talking to other clinicians that are poor prognostic indicators, but they don't destine somebody to having psychopathy, or they don't mean certainly they will develop it. Now again, I've used many references here for this video, and I'll put the articles that I've used, I'll put the references for those articles in the description for this video. So let's get started with the 11 signs that a child is at risk for psychopathy. Now, if you want to stop here in terms of this video, if you want to say, well, I don't want to get into the different signs, that's certainly okay. I'm going to avoid being graphic, of course. I'm going to try to avoid being graphic, as I do in all my videos. But some of these signs are a little disturbing. So if you stop now, you still learned a lot about antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy and conduct disorder. So it's a win. You can stop now, and you've learned something, and that's good. The details aren't for everybody, certainly. 
So now moving into the signs. So the first three are referred to as the MacDonald Triad. And I've seen all three of these, and they do seem to have a connection to psychopathy, but again, they're no guarantee. The first one is bedwetting. And I'm going to group a few different elements together here. So bedwetting, I also have seen children who urinate on furniture and urinate on other children. And I think these are really kind of two separate issues. Bedwetting, I think, is usually a sign of trauma, or at least it's often a sign of trauma, and that may be how it connects to psychopathy in the future. But urinating on furniture or in places they shouldn't urinate, or certainly urinating on other people and other children, that's more a sign of domination. The literature isn't really clear on this. Some theorists think it's domination. Others just think it's aggression. But either way, it's a poor prognostic indicator. So moving to number two, this would be arson. And this is really not only arson, but a fascination with fire and destruction. I've seen this take many forms, but usually with children that are really young, you'll see getting into matches or looking at flames or candles and being fascinated with that. And then it'll develop into having desire to set small fires. And then sometimes it leads to, again, arson. So it usually doesn't start with no interest and move right to arson. That would be a fairly unusual presentation. Usually it's a fascination that develops over time. And the flames, the looking at flames, looking at videos of flames or fires, really captures the attention of the child. That's one of the things I've noticed. It's not something they can really be distracted from usually too easily. There's a genuine interest in flames and destruction and the power of fire. So the third sign is hurting small animals. Sometimes we see this referred to as torturing or killing small animals. And this one's particularly disturbing. Of all these signs, this one really stands out as a particularly poor prognostic indicator. So again, with this one, just like we see with a lot of these signs, it doesn't necessarily start out by hurting small animals. So if somebody just doesn't go from nothing to getting a household pet and torturing them. Usually we see this starts with an interest in hurting animals, and one way this is expressed is on stuffed animals. So I've talked to a number of counselors in my career who treat children with conduct disorder and kind of specialize in the area of real behavioral problems like the callous on emotional traits, and many of them keep stuffed animals in the office, and they might have like a teddy bear or some other stuffed animal, and they want to see what the children will do in therapy with the animal. And sometimes it's really disturbing, even though it's a stuffed animal, not a real animal. I've had clinicians tell me stories of how children ripped off all the limbs of a teddy bear or a stuffed animal, put the stuffed animal in the door and slammed the door on the stuffed animal's head, flushed the stuffed animal down the toilet or attempted to, and even tried to set a stuffed animal on fire. So fortunately, I've never heard of an instance where they were successful at setting the fire, but that's fairly disturbing. If somebody's going to do that to a stuffed animal, Again, that's a bad sign that they may try to do it to an actual animal. Now, this hurting small animal sign is one of those signs that a lot of times we see when a child comes in for counseling because this is an indication that pushes parents kind of over the edge. So if the family cat or dog was hurt by a child in the household, that is a moment when parents would oftentimes seek counseling for a child. So unfortunately, this becomes kind of the entry point Right, so the child hurts a small animal and then they come into therapy. So 
we don't necessarily see the child before that in a lot of cases. Now, this isn't something that all children with callous unemotional traits do. Again, it's just a sign. It's just an associated feature that we see with callous unemotional traits. Now, the fourth sign, a risk factor here, is cheating friends, enemies, and individuals who are neutral to the child. So what do I mean by this? Now, with children, we usually don't see fraud or manipulation at the level we would see with an adult, but sometimes we'll see stealing money or stealing toys. So if you think about this and you think of normal child behavior, you think, well, maybe some children would steal toys from other children. This isn't particularly shocking or unusual. But what strikes me with this particular sign is really the cheating or stealing from friends, enemies, and from people that would be neutral. Like, that's the distinction. Usually children will, at some point, steal toys. That's not, again, super unusual, but not from friends, not from people who already share their toys with them. So that's the line that's being crossed here. If a child views another child as an enemy and they take something from them, that's one thing. It's not pro-social, but that's one thing. But to take toys or other material goods from a friend, that's what really seems unusual to me, and that's really what has a stronger connection to psychopathy. Not recognizing when somebody's an ally, an enemy, or neutral. Having no recognition for that boundary, and then just crossing that boundary. Now, the fifth sign really usually applies to children that are a little younger, maybe even as young as three or four years old, but it can, of course, apply to children a little older as well. And this is ignoring another child who is crying. This is a bad prognostic indicator. One of the theories here is that children who have psychopathic tendencies or traits or callous unemotional traits can't recognize distress in faces. So if they see that another child is crying, they're not going to react to that. That's not something they recognize as being problematic. And the reason that this sign tends to matter, I think, is because we believe that this inability to recognize distress in faces leads to aggression. So one of the things about someone who has a fearful expression or who's crying, in a sense, it can be a sign of submission. It can be a sign that somebody's not a threat to you. But if somebody can't see that sign, if a child can't recognize that another child is trying to move away from a fight or submit, then the child with the callous and emotional traits is more likely to attack. So this really results in a problem where they don't recognize who's trying to dominate them and who's trying to submit to them. They look at everybody as potentially threatening. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, 
the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. So again, I'm kind of starting here with ignoring a child who's crying and moving to potential attacks, but that's really what we worry about with this particular sign as indicated. The sixth sign is being dominant with an authority figure. So let me give some examples of this. One of the most distressing or alarming symptoms or signs connected with this risk factor is attacking a teacher. If we look at the research literature, we see that when a child commits crimes, like an adolescent commits crimes, and they look back at the history of that child, most of the time they see some sort of incident that involves somebody being dominant with an authority figure, and a lot of times that comes in the form of attacking a school teacher. So this really kind of breaks from the conventional thinking that a child would be kind of afraid to attack a teacher or would submit. Instead, we see a child trying to dominate. I've also seen this with children who attack police officers. Again, that's a poor prognostic indicator. I would say it's a bad sign if a child attacks anyone, regardless of whether that individual is an authority figure or not. But on top of this, what really worries me is when there's a weapon used. So it's one thing to impulsively attack or try to dominate somebody. That's problematic. But to use a weapon kind of shows planning and an intent to really do a lot of damage and potentially lethal damage. So that's even more worrisome when you add the weapon onto the attack. Also, if the attack is unprovoked, that just adds more alarm to that particular sign. So number seven, the seventh sign that a child could eventually be a psychopath, would be committing a crime alone. A lot of times we see that children do commit crimes. It's relatively common, but it's peer pressure that's involved. So they get together with other children, and the worry about consequences decreases. They take more chances, and they commit some sort of crime. Or there's an excitement element tied to it. They want to do something together that's exciting. But when we see children that commit crimes alone, that's a particularly worrisome indicator. Now, kind of tied to this around criminality, I also see that when children get together, sometimes they fantasize about crime. Like they'll see these different movies about a jewel heist, for example, or a bank robbery. And they'll start to plan out the crime, like can they break into the museum or the bank or whatever at night and steal this high-value object. But if an individual has the limited prosocial emotions, the callous unemotional traits, they're more likely to introduce the idea of harming somebody into those crime fantasies. So if children are talking about a bank robbery kind of hypothetically, again, not seriously planning a bank robbery, but just talking about how they would get away with it, and a child introduces the idea of just knocking the guard out or something like that, that's really jumping to another level of harm and it's a poor prognostic indicator. So the eighth sign here is a desire to see disturbing images or scenes. And this really connects to the lack of empathy. So if there is an article about a car accident, like in a newspaper or online, and a child accesses that, they may be disappointed because they couldn't see the bodies. They couldn't see the dead bodies in the car accident or the injured bodies. So again, most people may look at the picture, they may want to see how bad the car accident was, but this is really a desire to see that people were hurt. And you could look at this from another angle, too. Sometimes with children who have callous, unemotional traits, they really mention this idea that they want to see somebody die. 
They want to actually see a human being pass away. This is something I've heard dozens of times. And it's no less distressing the 20th or 30th time you hear it as it was the first time you hear it. And what's interesting about this is the child doesn't always want to be the cause of the death, but they just want to see the death. Now, sometimes they do want to cause the death, and this only magnifies the worry even more. This is really probably one of the most disturbing elements that we see with the callous and emotional traits. When a child says to you as a counselor that they want to cause someone's death because they want to see it take place. So it's disturbing no matter what the reason would be, but for whatever reason, for me anyway, that just strikes me as particularly disturbing. This one is frightening and a very poor prognostic indicator. So moving to number nine, this one is about how sometimes children can be fearless with consequences. So one thing we see with callous on emotional traits is that children aren't afraid of timeouts, they're not afraid of punishment, and they're not even afraid of physical pain. So it's related to fearless dominance, which is a characteristic of psychopathy. We also see that after the punishment, they resume the bad behavior almost immediately. So it's really like the punishment, the consequences just don't matter at all. Now what's interesting about this sign though is a lot of times when this is present, a child will still be motivated by reward. So they're not afraid of punishment, but they're still motivated by reward. So it sets up kind of an interesting dynamic when trying to lay out behavioral plans that will help a child move away from callous on emotional traits. The tenth sign is when a child bullies other children. And What's particularly notable here with this one is when there's a, a desire for the child to create fear in another child. So it's not about just taking something from them, but when a child really wants another person to fear them. And what I find interesting here is, again, we see a deficit in the ability to recognize fear, but that doesn't mean that a child doesn't know that fear exists as a construct. So the last sign, the 11th sign, that a child could potentially become a psychopath is poor parenting. And we see this over and over in the research literature. Cold parenting, having negative reactions to a child when they disclose something, failing to provide a child positive feedback, or being highly critical. And I think as well, neglect, any type of neglect and abuse we know is connected to psychopathy. Now what's interesting here is if you look at some of the horrible things that sometimes parents do. It becomes understandable. Like psychopathy, children developing into psychopaths eventually becomes understandable. Now I won't go through some of the things I've seen here because they're just they're too much. But some of the traumatic events, you really just look at the horror behind what children have to endure at the hands of some bad parents, criminally bad parents. You wonder how they could become anything else but psychopathic. It makes sense the child would become cold and distant and try to have feelings be removed from them, be detached from feelings and not develop empathy. Now another part of this of course we see in the literature that psychopathic traits in children do seem to worsen parenting practices. So it's not just a one-way street here. Sometimes parenting can lead to psychopathy and sometimes psychopathy can lead to bad parenting. So just as is the case with all these different signs, the relationship between the sign and psychopathy is complex. 
So with all this talk about how children can develop psychopathic traits, callous unemotional traits, and eventually develop psychopathy, is there any hope? Does treatment tend to work? Well, we know that there is some success that has been demonstrated with treatment. So treatment's always a good option, and the earlier, the better. We know that recovery may be possible, although many clinicians believe that the type of recovery is really simply an adjustment. So a child who develops into a psychopath may not be an active psychopath in terms of criminality. They may learn to adjust to society's norms. They may still have a lot of the characteristics like low empathy, but they learn that they can get more of what they want by following the law as opposed to breaking the law. So this is kind of a grim view of recovery from psychopathy and a grim view of how a child could develop into a psychopath. But a lot of clinicians believe this. A lot of clinicians believe that the psychopathy really can't be eradicated. Somebody can just adjust to that type of personality. But either way, we know that the bottom line is success in terms of society. We may not be able to eliminate psychopathy always, but we can still help children to develop into productive citizens as they move into adulthood. So again, it just kind of acknowledges the concerns and the seriousness around psychopathy. It would be dismissive, I think, to say, well, no, if a child has callous unemotional traits, there's no risk that they'll develop into psychopaths. And even if they do, we can work it out with treatment. That's just not the case. There is a risk, and the treatment is not always successful. And sometimes when it is, it's simply functionally successful in terms of society. It doesn't really change the underlying traits. Now, on the topic of treatment success, one of the trends I've seen over the last few years, and again, this is understandable, is a lot of agencies struggle to deal with children who have callous, unemotional traits, especially if there's any violence involved. So what happens is they get kicked out of these agencies and get referred to agencies that, in theory, can handle these behaviors but we see very few agencies that are willing to take children, especially, again, with the violent aspect included. So really the children that would be at the most risk to developing psychopathy. I remember visiting an agency a few years ago and I was walking through the hallway. So I was moving through these interior doors they had. So we had a hallway and I was going through these offices. And one of the offices didn't have a door. And it seemed unusual because it had a door frame and you could see it one time. There were places where the hinges went, but they appeared to be torn out. So I asked one of the counselors who worked there what happened, and they were telling me that there was a child they were treating, and the child was around 8 to 10 years old, and they broke the door off the hinges. So they rammed their whole body into the door, including their head. So they just stood up, they got angry, and they rammed into the door repeatedly. So they were inside the office here with the counselor when this happened, until the door broke and it just fell into the hallway and then just walked away. So you saw that all the hinges again were ripped right out of the door frame and apparently the doorknob was broken off the door as well. So they never bothered to replace it. They just used the office for something else. Uh, I don't know if it was storage or whatever they did with it, but they decided not to replace that door and they decided for similar sessions they were just going to leave the door open and they made some other changes to avoid that becoming a problem with confidentiality. And on top of that, they changed their policy so that any violence, if there's any violent act by any child, that was it. They were going to be discharged. Before, they had tried to work with a child, but after that, they weren't going to do it anymore. And I can appreciate both sides of this, right? We need to treat 
children who have these traits to help prevent them from becoming psychopathic because the damage they can do as an adult, in theory at least, would be much worse. But we also have to protect counselors and staff. And nobody wants to work in a work environment where they're threatened and they have to fear for their safety. So I can appreciate, again, both sides of this. I'm not sure there's really any answer except more funding for agencies that are capable of handling children that are at risk to become psychopathic. But of course, it's always a simplistic answer when you say, well, throw more money at the problem. But I'm just not sure how else to address this issue. Counselors aren't going to work in fear, but we do have to address the psychopathy issue because of all the violent crime that's attached to it. So it's an interesting problem, and I wish I had a better answer in terms of solution. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.